So here's a question. I'll state it beforehand that it is a rhetorical question in the event that some of you feel compelled to answer me and thereby embarrass yourselves. No, you can answer if you want. Here's a question. Why are you single if you are? Why are you single? I'm assuming that at various times and on certain occasions, if you are a single person, you have wondered this question. You may be single because the right dude or dudette has not yet arrived. You may be single because of divorce. You may be single because of death. But in whichever case, why are you single? come back to that in just a minute. The second question is related but different. Why are you married? Why are you married? Why are you married? Now, I'm going to propose, it's not entirely my idea, but it's something I've been thinking about, that the answer to both of those questions from a certain angle of vision is exactly the same. Why am I single? Answer, because God is good to you. Why am I married? Answer, because God is good to you. Now, is this an elementary school, Sunday school lesson? Age appropriate for people who cannot understand anything complicated? Well, no, you see, this is simplicity on the far side of complexity. It's profound. You know why? Because right here, right this minute, in real time, there are people who are saying to themselves, not the way I said it, in a ponderous, philosophical kind of way, why am I single? You're saying it like this, why am I single? And there are just as many who at times, even though they may not admit it to their spouses, say, why am I married? We're perennial malcontents. And it's very easy for married people to think they got tricked, to think they surely got the wrong one, and to think, oh, my best life lays somewhere outside of this situation. I can't breathe here, man. I would flourish in another set of conditions than this one. And most single people think, ah, My life would be complete if I had a spouse. I didn't have to go home after church alone. And there's a very real sense of angst that both sets of conditions meet up with regularly. And if that is something you think is not true, I don't think you're being honest with yourself. So I have come up with this aphorism, my own version of a proverb I've co-opted one of the actual Proverbs. It says this, The rich and the poor have this alike. The the Lord is maker of them both. Do you know that one? It's an idea like, no matter what you got, God made you. Well, so I'm going to switch it a little bit. Married and single have this alike. The Lord is suspect to them both. Does that seem overly cynical? The married person and the single person have this alike 
the Lord is suspect to them both. We've been talking about this theme of creation, God's intention of how he made everything. When it was pristine and working, firing on all six cylinders as it ought, how creation got vandalized and God's intentions got substantially stained and mildewy in the fall when Adam and Eve decided, the first married people, instead of working in conjunction with the God who had given them so much, decided that God must be holding back on them, must be keeping something from them. They believed the insinuation, the snarky insinuation of the evil one who said, you know God's really nervous, don't you? He just doesn't want you to have the good stuff. Do you know that if you just fudged on this one command a little bit, You'd understand how much God is holding out on you. And they, like us, they bit. And they were trapped. And the world's never been the same. And so you come to the Corinthian church where God has decided in the milieu, the environment, the historical moment where they are to come in to begin to reverse everything, to reverse the effects of the fall, to reverse what happens in marriage, to reconcile to himself all kinds of things. And it's such a cataclysmic sort of event that the people in Corinth, they actually start to think they're farther along than they are. Sometimes in the Bible, God has to, through his apostles, help them see, hey, 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 you're still... You're still in the dark ages, man. You're a theological Luddite. Get an iPad. Like, realize where you are. Realize that Jesus has come, that he's set you free from the law, that the Spirit is here, that you're reconciled to God, not by what you do. It doesn't matter if you get circumcised or not. It doesn't matter. You don't keep laws to keep God off your back. Jesus has kept the law for you. He has reconciled you to God. Sometimes he has to convince them of that, but then sometimes he hits on people. We have them in our world, who have been so amorously met up with by Jesus and his spirit. They've been so overcome. It's been such a, as I said before, cataclysmic sort of event. They start to imagine the law is fulfilled. It doesn't matter what we do anymore. It doesn't matter how we use our bodies. We're like the angels now. We don't give ourselves in marriage. We don't have to be married. If you're married, you don't need to participate in those bodily things that happen in marriages. And so Paul is addressing that. He's saying, yes, a cataclysmic event happened. But instead of it making you think that you need to change the situation that you're in, you need to realize all it does is it transforms the way you live within that situation. The coming of Jesus to make all things new. The coming of Jesus to fulfill the law and to send his spirit into your life to cause his life to fragrantly be emitted from you. It doesn't mean that you ought to leave your spouse or you ought to leave your job or you ought to leave your town. It means that you ought to see the way you live within those situations differently. And so... I can't get into all that he says. There's a lot here, and it's 
I'm sure when you hear it, you're like, man, I wish, what does that mean? Talk to me privately, and I'll tell you exactly what everything means perfectly. <laughs> but right now, I'm just going to confuse you. What I'm interested in is because married people and single people alike suspect that God is holding out in some way. They wonder whether God's actually good. I think it's pivotal for us to look at what the apostle says in verse 17. Because he's been telling, he's saying, married people, don't give up on your spouse. Like, don't get divorced. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said this so clearly one time when people were saying, hey, can we get divorced for any and every reason if we're not fulfilled? If he's got hair growing in strange places, now that he smells funny. Can we get divorced for any and every reason? And Jesus says, heck no, man. Moses permitted divorce because your hearts had become calcified. That's not how God intended things to be. And the disciples heard him so clearly. You know what they said? They're like, dang, nobody should get married. Do you understand how clearly they heard what Jesus was saying about marriage? He was saying, you are so fastened to this person by these vows. You have become one thing, one flesh. That's God's creational intent. And it still happens today. That once you get linked up, you can't get unlinked. And they say, holy cow. We probably ought not get married then. That says to me they got what he was saying. They got the severity of it. So Paul's saying to married people, don't get married. I mean, <laughs> again, he's saying to married people, stay married. Even if your spouse is someone who doesn't share the central conviction of your life. Now, think about that for a second. Some of you are spiritual giants to your little kindergartner husband in spiritual things, or vice versa. And it's so easy to imagine if the Lord would just help your spouse to love him as you do, that everything would be better. But Paul's saying, if you've got an, even an unbelieving spouse, somebody who doesn't believe a lick about that Jesus stuff, and they're willing to stay put with you, he says you ought to stay put with them. Now, this is the first century, right? They don't understand about the dynamics of personal relationships and the needs that we have to be emotionally fulfilled. Please don't be so arrogant as to think that. See, what if the apostle believes so earnestly that the Lord is superintending our affairs, that, that it can be okay. You can be in a really bad marriage and you can stick it out because the Lord has assigned that to you. And you can start to see that the Lord who has bound himself to you by oath wishes for you to live out the oath that you've bound yourself to your spouse with. And it can be okay. Or if you're single and you are sure he says, you don't, don't be in a hurry. You're going to have lots of trouble. I didn't read that part. But he says, retain the place in life the Lord's assigned to you in which God has called you. 
Now, that doesn't mean if you have a chance to get married. He says, if you have a chance to get married, get married. If you have a chance as a slave to get out of slavery, get, get out of it. But what he's wanting people to see is the place where they are right now is the place where God has them right now. And God's goodness doesn't change. It doesn't change based on how well your marriage is going or whether you have a relationship or not. It's a constant. Our apprehension of it is constantly changing, though. And so the apostle is calling us back to remember that the Lord, this Jesus, has called us into relationship with him, and that is to affect all of our different relationships now so that we don't have to suspect him. Why are we single? Because God is good to us. Why are we married? Because God is good to us. Now, this is a really helpful thing, at least in my mind, because when I look at marriages, I'm in one. I see lots of them. I'm around lots of married people. I'm in a culture where half of them tank, as are you. And it seems to me that this kind of teaching, this kind of wrestling to believe that God is actually good to us in the midst of something that can sometimes feel so very bad to you, is really kind of critical. Let me tell you something about Kathy Youngblood, and she loves it when I mention her. In the last, we've been dating and we're married for uh, 23 years, and I'm only 25. Just kidding. In the last 16 years of our being, oh, I messed up the joke. I'm like Michael Scott. The joke was going to be, that my wife has lived with at least three different men in the last 16 years, and all of them have been me. See, that would have been so much better if I hadn't ruined it by getting it wrong in the first time. But do you realize this? Lewis Smead said that about his own wife. He said, and I look back, my wife has lived with five different men over the last 40 years, and they've all been me. And the common link between them is this identity that at the beginning of our lives, we set these promises As Chesterton said, a promise is an appointment you set with yourself at a future date. And the promise that you make to your spouse in the name of the Lord who's made similar promises to you is that no matter what happens, no matter what day it is, no matter what year it is, I'll be here. And see, that's incredibly important because we live in a world right now where you are constantly, constantly thinking about upgrades, Constantly. You realize that a new iPhone came out a few weeks ago? No. What's an iPhone? Who ever heard of an iPhone? Well, you've heard of an iPhone because that's all you heard on the news when it came out. You've gotten four million emails about it. You're constantly looking to upgrade your car, your computer, your house. Why not your wife? Why not your husband? Stanley Hauerwas who's a professor at Duke, said this, though. You know what happens is that we, you know, you live, we live in this culture where we're looking for Mr. Right. We're looking for the right one. And he says this, you always marry the wrong person. Always. You always marry the wrong person. Now, some of you who are not married yet think I'm being too cynical. Some of you who are married, I just saw you smile. And they're going, 
Well, the reason is, is because when you make these vows to this person, it may be a day, it may be three days, it may be three weeks, three years, ten years. They change. They're not the same person. The only continuity is the relationship that's been formed by vow. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer could say at the head of marriages. He says, your love has brought you to the point of this marriage. Now it will be your marriage that sustains the love. Now nobody believes that. But we who believe the Lord has called us into these relationships, has called us to be children of promise, has called us to nurture promises, has called us to be faithful where we've been assigned, we have to believe it. We have to labor to believe it. We have to get up close to this promise-making Savior to believe it. That though it may seem in lots of ways, at lots of times, that you got the wrong one, you didn't. Because when you made those vows, that became Mr. Right. That became Mrs. Right for you. And one of the most pernicious lies of the devil, one of the most pernicious lies of our culture, one of the most pernicious, pernicious lies that will happen in your own noodle is the suspicion that you somehow got ripped off. Kathy didn't know I was going to get this fat and ugly. (laughs) I promise, at one point I was at least, look how pretty she is. I was marginally handsome, probably. (laughs) But look what she's stuck with now. Praise God for promises. (laughs) Hey. Thank you, Jeff. See, whether you're married or single, you're going to constantly be wrestling with this question. Is God really good to me? And if you can remind yourself, the Lord has called you where you are right now. That's where you're to be faithful to him. That's where you're to receive from him. That's where maybe even in weakness and in insult and in hardship, as the Apostle Paul said, that's where you're meant to meet up face to face with the extraordinary renovating power of Jesus. You may have to be exactly where you are in the state that you don't want to be in in order to receive from your Savior precisely what you need to receive. Married and single have this alike. The Lord is suspect to them both. But if you can start to recognize that part of our lives here, when we submit ourselves to relationships, we have to submit ourselves first to this Lord. That's why the psalmist says, commit your way to the Lord. All knowledge, everything that you know about, everything that you can appreciate begins with some kind of commitment. Some kind of, therefore, surrender. Some kind of promise. And the psalmist is calling us to do that to the Lord first. That's the commonality between single and married. Is that if you're not married to Jesus, it's awfully hard to be either one of those things. And Dave Connors this morning, he gave me some fodder for this. At the end of the sermon, he's the worship leader at the earlier service. He said, you know, some of you in high school, he went to a Christian high school, I'm deducing from what's about to be said. He said, some of you knew these people in high school that when everybody was dating, they would always say, yeah, I'm dating Jesus. People, people in all schools don't say that, I don't think. <laughs> now, and you can hear a thing like that, and you're like, oh, come on, police. And it's fine to say police on that, that's fine. But in a very real sense, whether you're single or you're married, 
If you would like to locate the goodness of God, the place to locate it is in Jesus. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. You're made for something far more extravagant than even what a remarkable husband like, say, me could give a wife. You're meant for something so much bigger than that. And your spouse or a date, they can't meet all that you need. And you're constantly going to be thinking that God's holding out on you and that you just need a better person, a better match. If you could just get in the right community, if you could just get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, that you'd be all fixed. But see, the apostle realizes that's a lie. That's why he can can say, stay put. Stay where you are, because wherever you are, that's where the Lord is with you. He's got you there. And you know what's remarkably wonderful about this? When you start to submit yourself to a course, when you commit yourself to something, it's this paradox that Christian theologians have always talked about, the freedom of the law, the freedom of submission, the freedom of not having to have your own way. I think about it like kids who have to wear uniforms to school. Maybe some of you at some point in your life had to wear uniforms. Did anybody here have to wear a uniform to school? Oh, look at all these uniform wearers. And see, I would think that most American modern youth would think that was odious. Ugh! can't wear skinny jeans, man. Uh, Trust me, I'll never wear skinny jeans. They don't make tent size. But these poor people have to wear uniforms. But you know what? If you have to wear a uniform, when you submit yourself to this law, when you submit yourself to this reality, there's an enormous kind of freedom that comes. Because you wake up in the morning, and guess what you don't have to wonder about? what you're going to wear. And you don't have to compare yourself to other people. Everybody's wearing a uniform. There's freedom and not having to decide things. You've already decided certain things. So you don't have to wake up in the morning and like sneak on to Land's End and start looking at the latest fashions for fall. You don't find yourself driving by department stores after school that aren't on the way home to find different kinds of clothes. You don't have to be wondering because it's set for you. And of course, when you believe that the Savior who has given up everything so that you could be made His really intends for you to delight yourself in Him, really intends that by committing yourself to Him that you actually find life, then you actually can live under a set of circumstances that you might not have chosen for yourself. You might be able to Live as a single person, contented for now. I don't know if you'll get married. Maybe you will. I don't know. But I promise you that God's good to you right now while you're single. And some of you are married. And I know that God wants you to stay that way. And he can help you live underneath it. Committed to him, delighting yourself in him. Paige Benton Brown said this, and I close with it. It's not that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, but that life has no tragedy like a God ignored.
It's not that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. It's that life has no tragedy like a God ignored. And the thing the apostle would have for married and single alike, who all find the Lord suspect at times, is he would say, don't ignore your Savior. He has you here. He has you in your singleness now. He has you in your marriage now. So commit yourself to him. Open yourself up to him. Throw your desperation to him. The apostle was no stranger to that desperation, and he said it's exactly there. Where I've learned in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions. That sounds like singleness and marriage to me. That's where Christ's power rests on me. Do not be suspicious of this Lord who has withheld nothing that you might be made right with him. And he has called you and he'll resource you. I hope you can believe it.